Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Over the past couple of months, we have been looking at the series, the book of Galatians. I've had a couple of people come up to me a couple of times and been like, with nothing else attached, they've said, are we still doing Galatians? And I'm like, yeah, until June, Um, which is actually surprisingly quite short for a preaching series, because actually, I don't know if people have heard of John Piper, he's a theologian, and he leads a church over in the States, and he did a series a long time ago on the book of Romans, and I wonder if anyone can guess how long that series went on for. Any guesses? A year. A year? Higher? Uh, Eight years it went on for, yeah. And so when I was in my early 20s, I was like, I'm going to listen to the whole thing because I'm really holy. And um, I got eight hours in and he'd reached verse 10 of chapter one. And I was like, nah, (laughs) I'll try again when I'm in my 50s or 60s or when I'm gardening in my 70s or something. But (laughs) there was too much going on in my 20s to do it. Um, So, but my point is, there's significance in being thorough, but also then does pose a little bit of a stumbling block for, well, myself, because this is the third time I'm preaching on Galatians, to be able to summarize the book of Galatians in a new and fresh way at the beginning of each preach. So I thought I'd do it a little differently this morning. So I want you to get, I want to get to you to imagine, basically, that there is, it's not very hard to imagine, there's an illness plaguing the whole world, um, a disease or a virus. And uh, there is no true cure. There's home remedies and, like, makeshift treatments that can make symptoms subside, but they don't actually do the job. And then miraculously, there's a medical breakthrough and a cure has been found. And it's now the job of the doctors to go out to people groups, communities, and administer this life-giving medicine. People are saved, they're made well again, healthy and thriving. But then a couple of years later, the same doctor that went out to provide this care initially, hears that when someone feels ill in these communities now, Instead of using this medicine that has been brought to them, they've turned back to their makeshift treatments and that aren't sufficient. The doctor is frustrated, he's angry and dismayed, and he writes them a letter and he says, why, when you have received all that you need, have you turned from something that is life-giving to something that isn't sufficient? Pleading for them to remember the miraculous and life-changing provision of this medicine. And on a small scale, this is what's going on in the book of Galatians. However, it's not a matter of medicine, it's a much more extreme matter of classism, racism, and then even further, their salvation. So the churches of Galatia have received the good news of the gospel through Paul, Christ dying for our sins, their sins, freedom through the faith in the cross, and turning from their old religious Jewish Jewish traditions. Then Paul hears word that a group of false prophets have come from Jerusalem and they're telling the churches in Galatia that yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but in order to be truly saved, you must still follow these ancient rules, circumcision, food laws, etc. And this was causing division, it was causing discrimination, and ultimately it was diluting the power of the gospel. So Paul was taking this very seriously and today we're going to be picking up from last week in chapter 4, verses 12 to 20. So yeah, it should appear on the screen behind me, but if you want to get your Bibles out, if you have them, and I'm just going to go and read through. 
Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, because, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn, despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may, be, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good, course, good purpose, and not only when I am in present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm just going to pray before I get started. Yeah, Lord, I thank you for the book of Galatians. I thank you for how challenging and relevant it is for us today. And I just pray that this morning you would be speaking through this passage, speaking to us, Lord, maybe have open hearts, open ears to hear what you are wanting to bring out of this. Amen. All right, now predominantly this far into Galatians, everything that Paul has brought to the surface has been theology and doctrine-based. He's gone straight in with the strong language and corrective theology like implements they want to put in place. But in these verses, we see a shift. Paul is appealing here from his heart to the Galatians. You can almost imagine Paul with multiple different hats. He's got his theology hat where he's talking about the fulfillment and work of Christ. He's got his like testimonial hat where he speaks from his own life experiences. And then this hat where he's talking relationally and apostolically to the churches in Galatia and pleading with them on quite an emotional level. And actually, as I was reading through this passage and preparing this preach, the three words that stood out to me were brothers, enemy, and children, which is why I've called this preach How We Relate, because I actually was going to call it Let's Get Relational, but then I decided not to. <laughs> um, because actually, we go on a sort of relational journey here with Paul in this passage, and that's where I want our focus to be today and how we relate to one another in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. So brothers... So to start with, brothers, some translations will say ancestors. Very important that we make note that this is addressing everyone. But as Julia took us through last week, we have been redeemed from the law, and through Jesus we receive adoption as sons and daughters, which gives us a spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. We are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. So in light of that, we have become part of God's family. And whatever your background, race, culture, heritage, we are now a brilliant multicultural family, within the kingdom of God. And despite us having different earthly parents, you guys are my brothers and sisters. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, which is actually a wonderfully beautiful thing, especially for those of us who, we might have complicated sibling relationships where maybe you're estranged or potentially there's a history of harm there. Or maybe you're an only child and this has been something that you've always struggled with. You've seen your friends, your schoolmates and peers grow up with the support of siblings and you've longed for that kind of connection. Today, because of what we have in Christ, we are that family. We have and are those siblings to one another. So we don't just gloss over the use of brothers and sisters here. Paul is actively, by naming the, naming the churches of Galatia, his family, he's referencing these verses that we read last week and declaring how the gospel unites and bonds us. He is appealing here to his family. So verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, 
Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So Paul here is willing the Galatians to commit to the true gospel like he has, to fully embrace the freedom of the cross and to be convicted by the truth, not wavering when false teachings come along. Paul was so satisfied and firm in his faith that he could preach to a group of people and say, your life should look like mine because mine looks like Jesus's. And this is a big challenge for us. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but like how many of us feel like we could say directly to our friends who aren't Christians, become like me because I'm so firm and satisfied and living in the freedom and joy of salvation that you should become as I am. This might be how we feel, but is it really portrayed in how we interact or speak to our friends? This is Christian should be our heart's cry that we're becoming more and more Christ-like, that when we interact with people, they see Jesus. And something I've been personally praying for in my own life is that the Spirit would come and nitpick and like turn over every rock and cranny and get into every corner of my life so that I can freely say this. It's an inward work that needs to happen in us with an outward fruit. Become as I am, for also I also have become as you are. So what he's referencing here when he says, for I also become as you are. We saw a few weeks ago how Paul publicly challenged Peter in chapter 2, calling out how he had separated himself from the Gentiles when he visited Galatia. This wasn't an act of loving, accepting family, but of racial discrimination. Peter didn't want to be seen eating with what was socially deemed to be unclean Gentiles, despite the cross cleaning, claiming us all clean and knew when we put our faith in Jesus and follow the good news. And we know Paul's heart for reach, reaching people with these good, this good news was so great that he learned languages, cultures, and humility to see people saved. He didn't separate himself from them. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 to 22, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Our end goal is for our friends to become like us in the freedom that is found in Christ, but to reach them, we have to become like them. There's a great scene from a show called The IT Crowd. I don't know if anyone used to watch it, maybe, yeah. Um, where there's this guy who's a bit socially inept, and his name's Moss, and he knows nothing about football whatsoever, and I can relate to him on, on many levels. <laughs> um, so he downloads this app, basically, that tells him how to have brief conversations with people about football. So he downloads it to be able to communicate with his hairdresser about recent matches, and something... One of the lines I think he says, which is like, did you see that ludicrous display last night? And then there was another one which is like, what was Arsenal thinking? Or they try and walk it. Also, I can't really remember it, but it was a very like football lingo that I do not know. And, uh, but the reason he does this in the show is so that he can connect with his hairdresser while he's awkwardly sat in the chair for half an hour or while he chats to the delivery man. And in the same way, if we want to reach those who are on our doorsteps, we need to be in their worlds. And I'm not saying you need to believe what they believe, but by devoting yourself to who they are and what they're about, you are reaching out to them with that brotherly, sisterly hand and drawing them into the family of Christ. You are showing them the Father's welcoming and loving heart. 
And this is what Paul experienced when he first arrived in Galatia. So he says to the churches in verse 13, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. It's believed that Paul originally stopped in Galatia because of an illness, and scholars aren't completely sure of what this was, because he never really fully goes into detail within the Bible. But they think it basically had something to do with his eyes. And uh, he was in need, and the Galatians attended to him. Verse 14, my condition was a trial to you. When they first met Paul, they self-sacrificially looked after him. The illness most likely disfigured him and made him look unattractive, potentially a little repulsive. I, um, I cut my finger the other day, poor me, and um, I'd managed to do it with a bread knife. It was very stupid. And initially, it looked really gross. And when I showed a couple of people, they actually visibly gagged, um, which, if you think about it, this is like, that's a tiny cut on my finger that I can hide. We're talking here about something that was going on with Paul's eyes that was, he wouldn't have been able to hide and would have been much, much worse. But despite his outward appearance, the cultures of Galatia didn't turn him away. They didn't scorn or despise him. They cared for him and treated him nobly as though he was an angel or even Jesus himself, he says. And this is a beautiful example of the gospel being lived out. I was a mess, but you didn't scorn or despise me. You treated me like family. You treated me like Jesus. You looked after me. You healed me. Instead of rejecting me, you welcomed me. This is what God has shown us. He takes us in when we're a mess, when we've been rejected and scorned by the world, when we're in need of healing, he graciously cares for us. Are we living out the gospel in the same way? Caring for one another's ailments, befriending those who are scorned and despised, treating them like we would Jesus? Paul even goes as far to say that he half anticipated them to gouge out their own eyes to give to him in return. But then actually we see this immediate contrast with the question, where is your blessing of me now? Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? Which leads me to my next relational name, which is enemy. And it's an interesting word, enemy. On an everyday relational basis, we don't really think of ourselves having enemies. I don't really hear it in conversations with friends very often. But I've been actually watching this quite intense thriller recently, which is brilliant. Um, it's a bit dark, but it's, it's really good. And uh, basically, the main protagonist within it is kidnapped by a sociopath. And uh, he has got an epiphany while he's trapped. that He's actually shown his captor more sympathy and compassion than he has his own son. He almost treated his son with the implication that he's his enemy rather than his actual enemy, the man who has him captive. And I think this can sometimes be how we relate to each other in relationships or friendships. We can end up treating the ones we love and care about most with the least amount of care. Or maybe we have our friendships on a tightrope of, you're my friend until you say something I don't like and then you're my enemy. You're forever nervously walking this rope, not knowing what you might say that could lead to your downfall and the relationship or friendship is over. The phrase, if you're not for me, you're against me comes to mind. And I think it's something that's becoming more and more apparent in our culture. You speak your truth and anyone who comes against it or dares challenges it is your enemy. And this is creating a culture that it's very difficult to challenge anyone. And this is what we're seeing here with the Galatians in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? 
The one that they treated with the same regard as an angel or Jesus himself, they now regarded as an enemy. Paul has come in and he's challenged and rebuked them. And because they don't like what they hear, they've turned on him. He's their enemy. And there's a really important lesson here to learn about how we take on being challenged, how we receive it. We know that challenging and accountability works best within close community and within friendship. And friendship is so important within the church. Often we focus relationships in the church about maybe mentors and mentees and discipleship group and marriages. But friendship is one of the highest importance, I think. It's within our close friendship groups where we can find loving accountability and challenging and not flip like the, uh, like the Galatians did to residing as, as soon as you say something I don't want to hear, you're my enemy. And Tom preached in the evening last week. Um, he's preached on the attributes of life-giving friendships and it was a brilliant preach, so I would like, highly recommend going onto the podcast and giving it a listen. In verse 17 they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. Here, Paul is talking about the false prophets using flattery to alienate and win over the Galatians. When I was a child, I was a little bit guilty of this. If I wanted one of my parents to side with me on something, my tactic would be to get one of them on their own, flatter them a little bit, and then go in for the, can I get sweets or something, you know, can I get money for the corner shop? And uh, it generally worked. Um, but in darker scenarios, this can be really dangerous. The phrase love bombing, I don't know if any of you have heard of it, has recently been coined and the definition for it is the action or practice of lavishing someone with attention or affection, especially in order to influence or manipulate them. It's been tied to bringing in new members into cults and is actually a form of psychological and emotional abuse. If you think about the tactic of a cult, it's to lure someone in and then isolate them, cutting them off from the world around them, and often lifting the leader of the cult up in high praise and attention. And this, to an extent, is what was happening with the false prophets. Paul said they were wanting the churches of Galatia to make much of them. They came with some part truths in there to confuse and convince. Yes, depend on God, but also depend on yourself and those around you. Depend on us. Flattery always has a motive. And that's not to say that that motive is always bad. It can be used to build someone up and for good purpose, as Paul says in verse 18, is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. But it can also be used to manipulate. And by flattering the Galatians and leading them to their distorted gospel, the false prophets weren't empowering the Galatians and leading them closer to Christ. They were building their own power within the churches so that they would be made much of. It's much easier to flatter someone than it is to challenge them. But if we want to be a people who are being molded and growing to be more like Jesus, then we need to be challengers. We need to be good receivers of being challenged as well. If your friends around you only ever flatter you and never challenge you, there's the potential you can see a delay in your maturity in Christ. And this is what was happening with the Galatians. They were becoming reliant and dependent on the flattery of the false prophets and not solely on the gospel truth. Jesus says in John 8, verse 31, to the Jews who have believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. This isn't just applicable to the gospel. I'm sure many of us can testify here to the struggle of maybe being lied to at some point in our lives or knowing part truths that create confusion and distrust. That unrest in the limbo period where you partly know what's going on 
but nothing is clear. It plagues and weighs on your mind, and you start doubting the truths that you did know. Then you realize as you uncover the truth and the situation is made clearer, we feel that kind of freedom and release in those everyday circumstances. If that is the case in those situations, how much more freedom does the truth of the gospel bring? John 8, 36, a bit further on. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. And this is the freedom that Paul is fighting for. Become like me, know the freedom that I know. I am for you, they are not for you. I'm your brother, not your enemy. Then to finish, we see Paul's final heart appeal in this passage as he refers to the Galatians as his children. Now, I don't have any children of my own as of yet, but I have a lot of houseplants, and I hear that it's the same thing. Um, no, I have nephews and some nieces. Um, and uh, yeah, I, when I look after them, I love to watch them play and interact. And I often think about the adults that they will one day be and what they will do, how their personalities will grow and develop. And I get excited about seeing that transition, seeing them grow, what will become of them. And I, I want what's best for them. And it's so exciting to see them in their early journeys of finding faith as well. And hear my nephew pray about how Jesus likes the curtains in his bedroom and probably does. Um, but it's just, it's really a beautiful thing to get to witness. And I long to see them grow in that faith and their love for God deepen. And this is Paul's heart for the Galatians here. As a spiritual parent, he feels an attachment and responsibility over the Galatians' spiritual growth. He's longing to see them become more like Jesus. And he's so emotionally invested in, the, in it that he describes the pain of seeing them turn away equivalent to childbirth. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. If you think about childbirth, again, I've never experienced it, but the stories from friends and family that I've heard is it's quite painful, excruciating painful, and it can last hours, days, weeks, and actually in searching for this fruit, I, um, I found that the longest labour that ever went on lasted 75 days, which is a long, long time. <laughs> it's arduous, it's distressing, and yet it's actually beautifully self-sacrificial. After nine months of growing and giving life to this little being, each mother lays aside their own personal comfort, their own body as such, to bring life to another. Mothers, they labor to form their child's life, and this is what Paul is laboring for, that Christ might be formed in the Galatians. But it says here he's laboring again. He already has experienced this. He's already labored for them when he first came and revealed the gospel to them. And now he feels like he's doing it once more. Can you imagine saying to that poor woman who did 75 days of labor, well done, you've done great, the baby's here, you've got another 75 days of labor pains to go. Like it would be unjust, it would be unnatural. Having labor pains a second time for work that should have been done once, he says, he'll continue to have these labor pains until Christ is formed in them. And the theologian John Stott puts it, he is not satisfied that Christ dwells in them. He longs to see Christ formed in them. Romans 8 verse 29 says this, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is the very reason that we have been chosen by God, that Christ might be formed in us. Which is my question for us today. Can we see Christ being 
formed in us? And can we see the formation of Christ in how we relate to one another, how we speak to one another, how we care for one another, how we care for those who aren't like us and for those who don't know Jesus? Paul's heart cry here is to the Galatians and to us that we would so wholly embrace and live in the truth and freedom of the gospel of how Jesus took on our sins and our burdens on the cross so that Christ would be evidently formed in us. How this now changes everything. It changes how we live our lives. It changes how we relate to one another and how we relate to the world around us as well. We find and relate to each other through Jesus and through what he's done. 